This is Caffeinated Risk, the monthly podcast for security professionals by security professionals, focused on the principles of enterprise security risk management, exploring technology and business management issues and how they relate to information security risk. Once a month, two self-proclaimed grumpy security guys bring you analysis, insights, and interviews with leading security risk professionals to learn how they work through a project, a program, or their careers using a risk-based approach to security. Now, here are your hosts, Tim McCreet and Doug Lease. You say you're self-proclaimed grumpy security professionals. Yeah. Prove it. So, how would one do that? And... If I'm looking or listening, rather, to last month's episode where we met with Alex and we talked about mapping, the whole thing with mapping is, of course, the security incident happens somewhere. There's a physical outcome of a cyber event. Cyberspace sounds cool and all, but cyberspace typically still has a physical component. It's it's a computer in a data center, even if that's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or something like that. And where we have people that are thinking about bringing in physical data sources like cameras and badge readers, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and trying to translate that back into security events that an organization might care about. It's kind of where you started in this business and you're officially recognized as the the president of ACES this year. So what are you seeing? And is it still reasonable to call this converged security or is it really just security and the physical element is another data point? That's a good question. And it's you're right. I kind of I had a similar thought after we chatted with you know our our last guest from Esri, and he just did an awesome job. What what I was what really struck me was this idea that it when he's doing a cybersecurity risk assessment, he starts with the physical. I I thought that was pretty cool, and and it really was something that you know for me it struck home this idea. It's even I think beyond converge because for years that concept of a converged security program was that the physical and the cyber teams were under one roof or one under one joint command structure. But it was normally for a budget perspective. Like it was easier to seek funding with one consolidated approach as opposed to, you know, different approaches. The the cyber folks asking for it and the OT guys asking for money and then the physical team asking for money. And I remember having those conversations, man, way, way back when we, you know, you'd sit out in front of the board meeting waiting to go in to pitch your budget and you look at the other guy and saying, hey, what are you asking for? And here's what I'm asking for. We'll ask for twice so we can get exactly what we need. And it was <laughs> it, it was that whole, uh, what, are, what are you trying to get at? Well, here's what I'm trying to do. And if you ask for a million and I ask for a million, we're only going to get half a million each. Is that Can we live with it? Sure. Now it's, I think you're right, this idea of converged is is getting a different lens now. But I'm trying to look at it from that risk perspective where it's, a security risk is a security risk regardless of on the physical and the cyber side. But what it creates, though, is this requirement for us to look at it from both lenses. Like, like if I'm if I'm looking at a cybersecurity incident, there is still going to be a physical aspect to it. And you made a great point about 
if I'm doing a, you know, a physical site review, I should really include, you know, how do I get connectivity here? And, and how am I going to protect that, you know, the, that, the cable that runs from the back of my camera to the data center so that nobody can go in the middle of it and splice an image and, and take over the camera. So what security controls can I put from a cyber perspective to protect the physical asset? Mm -hmm. So we've gone... I think we've almost come full circle back to the original concept that convergence was really a, it. It was an opportunity to be more streamlined from a budget and from a command perspective. Where now convergence is really leading towards that argument of if I just look at security as a from a risk perspective first, then whether it's a physical or cyber risk, it it shouldn't matter to the practitioner. It's what skills do I draw on now to identify the physical component, and then what do I draw from the cyber component, and can the two teams work together to reduce the risk? So I think it's forcing us to look at things from a different lens. And it's asking us to start approaching a cyber event to include the physical. Because yeah, Doug, you're right. It's at the far end of this, a hand on a keyboard is somewhere and a transaction for the data is somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Like, and somewhere in that equation, there's, there's, there's a physical space for both of them, whether it's the human in a basement in a country ending in Stan or a, a data center somewhere in North America to keep data sovereignty. It's, there still is a physicality to a cyber event, regardless of how we want to look at it. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that, that understanding data sovereignty is, is one thing. But I think where I was going with this was more on the converging of data inputs from the front of the, the cyber event. Like you said, the hands on the keyboard are coming through a computer. That computer has an IP address. That IP address is in this country, this building attached to this switch port, which means it's at this desk. But as we saw with the mapping conversation, this is a massive thing. You think about an organization with 10 or 20,000 people working at it, I'd be very surprised if they knew where every single wall jack for every single computer was. And then the whole thing goes out the window the minute you put people on Wi-Fi anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, like it's it's going to be very difficult to to put them beyond, you know, a building level. And let's say you do identify an intrusion. What is the standard operating procedure for a security guard to go investigate that? Because from what I've learned... Most guard staff are not typically employees. They're typically contracted through a guard company, and there's a contract that says we do this and we don't do that. And Yeah, their post orders are specific, and it's narrow, and yeah, yeah, all of that, yeah. Are you writing that into contracts now? And I need you to go around and look for rogue access points and all these other interesting things. I don't think that's realistic. I, I, it isn't the normal, that's for sure, um, but... So Dave Tyson, one of our guests from a little while ago, when he, when he talked about converged security, when he was at the city of Vancouver, he actually got his guard force members to do when they were doing their tours of the different facilities within the city. They would look for those things like, you know, a, a, what looked like a weird device plugged into somebody's desktop or they didn't have their screen locked or, you know, somebody was working at two in the morning and they didn't have a badge or they're on somebody else's machine. Um, all of those things, I think, there's a point where we're going to have to start including that in how we look at the physical security of a space. And, and I mean, it, whether it's a contract guard force member or not, there's still going to be, I think, an opportunity to change that scope of work to include this.
Mm-hmm. You know, two in the morning, a guard force member wandering around a, a facility is going to see something far faster than you and I would sitting at home. If they, you know, if they challenge somebody sitting at a desk or they see some inappropriate activity, they can make they can make a determination and action on that right away. Mm-hmm. It's not going to solve the remote attack coming in from any place in the globe, but internally we have a chance to make a bit of a difference that way. And even if it's to even if it's just to report the incident to the cyber team so they can look at the next day, at least you got a heads up. It, it's not going to be ideal or perfect, but I think it's a great place to start with that mindset of converge is that we need to look at both elements. And from the cyber side, we need to look at that physical side too. When we look at some of the things that they're talking about in GDPR around not just the right to be forgotten, but even when somebody is looking at the data, can they easily identify a person? Obviously, with a camera, that's kind of the point, is that you can identify who it is. But they do get into a thing around the data processor. So that could be a security guard, that could be the HR department of a, of a company. And from what I'd gathered, there was quite a bit around the legal agreements that defined what you could and could not do. So maybe these things like the the big brother, you're spending too much time in the cafeteria or the washroom, or you show up 10 minutes late for work every day. Maybe things like card data can't be used for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's one of the privacy tenets, right? I'm collecting this data for the following reasons. It can't be used for these other things. Can I insist that the data captured is used for health and safety and security and not HR-type matters? Yeah, and and that's a really good point because we, over the years, man, I, I, I fought forever to not be the, the time cop. Yes. How long was how long was Tim in the cafeteria? And he badged in at. We want to know when he badged in and when he badged out and when he left. Like I, I made it really clear to a lot of the teams that would request that information. Is that look, I'm, I'm, that's a, that's a fireside chat discussion. That's a performance discussion. That's not a security discussion. And we went to great lengths over the years to explain the reasons why we have a card access system is reducing access to areas and facilities that I need access to nothing more, nothing less. What do I need to do to complete my job task? And that, you know, just like what you mentioned, the stated purpose and what was the intended purpose for collecting the data and the secondary purposes we, we always used to argue, right? Cause it would be like, Oh, HR wants to know when did Tim come into the building for what purpose? Right. And for what reason? Well, we don't think Tim's working that as the way he should be. Then that's a management discussion. That's not a security discussion. So we, you know, we continually push back against those types of requests because we got so much of it, even though the technology was in place and it was accurate. And we were able to use that technology to demonstrate how efficient and effective the control was. We passed our audits. We were able to demonstrate that 100% of the time, if I, if Tim and Doug had a card, they could only go to the data center as long as they carded, you know, if they couldn't card in and didn't piggyback off somebody else or et cetera, then, you know, we were able to prove the efficiency of the controls. So we push back hard on a lot of stuff. And it wasn't, it wasn't until recently when I started looking at it from that privacy lens. I pushed back on it because I, I was being a lazy security guy and I didn't want to do HR's job. That was the first one. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I, I kept telling him, I said, look, if, if the manager's having problems with performance of the employee, that's the manager's job to address the performance, as any good manager should. 
a leader should always be able to manage their performance. So don't come to me to be your time cop and tell you when, you know, Tim came in and left the cafeteria. That's a question between you and Tim. But it's only been recently where I've actually looked at it from a different lens now. And it, it really comes down to the privacy perspective is that the intent and purpose of the card access system was to create a control to reduce access to sensitive areas. And to be able to track, to your point earlier, Doug, about this whole idea of safety, that we have five people in the data center, they haven't carted out yet, we've had a fire, we got to go look for five people, right? Not four, not three, we need five, right? Because none of those five have left, and we're not going to stop until we find all five. Mm -hmm. So it became, for me, that a different lens now. Now it's from a privacy and intent of collection. Like, what's the intent of collecting the data? What's the purpose of collecting the card access system? It's no different than what's the intent and purpose of collecting logs for your browser history. Is it to demonstrate how busy Tim is on, you know, on selling stuff on eBay? Or is it, you know, to make sure that I'm not downloading malware from, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a ransomware site and infecting the network? Like, what's the purpose and what's the intent? So I had that... Um, discussion when I was at the government of Alberta where you know we we had went to huge lengths to discuss why we were putting in controls in place on internet traffic uh, when I was talking to the justices because there was a requirement for the justices to have a unique or at least access unfettered access to the internet for research in you know in the event of working on a file that they needed to and a case that they were dealing with especially in the supreme court here in Alberta so that was an eye-opener for me, right? Same thing again. It's just like, if you're on my network, you're going to follow my rules. Yeah, that Yeah, that was a good discussion point with the bunch of chief justices. <laughs> you know, because I was, I was quickly and politely reminded that, you know, the, the, the judiciary system has to be distinct from the government. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I get that now. So we did work out a solution and we did put controls in place that worked. But it, that just led me to these different points of view that, it, you know, we, we traditionally collected data on as a security requirement. And then it was always borrowed by somebody else for something, you know, outside of what we intended it for. Mm -hmm. But it really is something we have to think about now is that from a privacy perspective, if we're collecting security data, it's for that intent of security. There's not, we didn't, we're not thinking, or we shouldn't be thinking of the secondary purpose. Oh, and then I can give HR a time report every week on who logs into the building. The argument for knowing who's on the internet and what they're doing does actually start to make sense when we just finished World Cup. Yeah. You know, what if my security guard that should have been watching for people breaking in was following his team? Right. Yeah. Because these are international things, sometimes they're at strange hours. It's actually not unusual to be watching soccer or hockey or something at two o'clock in the morning. Yep. Agreed. Fair enough. Knowing that that was the majority of this person's computer activity instead of looking at doing their rounds or whatever. I do see that as an actual thing, especially if there was an incident as a result of somebody potentially not doing their job. Right. Yep. But there I'm thinking we almost want to be looking at some other type of guidance, like reviewing the tape that came in from that camera, it's clear that you were exposed to that data. It was on the screen and you missed it. Now the question is why? Exactly. And that's when the interviewing would come in rather than saying to your IT department, hey, go look at this computer in a guard station, which 18 different people log on to over the course of a week. Mm -hmm. And... Yes, there is some personal shopping and things like that. 
but I can't tell you whether they were solely watching the World Cup. Well, they should have been phoning the police on this particular matter. Exactly. Very tricky to do. And, you know, maybe that's the, the scenario where they say, well, they can't go somewhere. And then you get to this quality of life situation where is it realistic to expect somebody to sit there in a room by themselves at two o'clock in the morning when nothing almost ever goes on right? and have them live in a bubble. So we've definitely got to start considering the people that are operating day in and day out as a constituent in this conversation and what's a reasonable amount of distraction compared to the work at hand. Well, remember we had... Our, our our guests that were here talking about this the human element for security and yes and and focusing on and that's kind of what it, it when you were just talking about that it really brought to mind that whole idea of the human element and how can we like as leaders or as professionals or as you know watching watching the risk profile for our organization part of what we should be doing is looking at those human events as well like knowing that the impact that came from the war with Russia against Ukraine and what was the impact not only in your organization and your people, but also those who have relatives in both countries, you know, um, you know, how, how is that impacting you and your work? How does that, how does that distract you from your job working with this? And how can we help with that? World Cup, Canada, pick a, pick a year when we're not watching a hockey game somewhere at two in the morning, right? So how we know in advance when these tournaments are occurring, we know when these, these major world events are going to be happening. There's a chance that we can look at this from a security lens and from a, a risk lens and identify what's the, what's some of the potential human behaviors we're going to have to look at. It was a great example, Doug, that, you know, at two in the morning, a guy's in the guard shack and he's got access to a laptop because of the card access system in the CCTV. He's got a browser how hard is it to type in FIFA and watch replays of the World Cup? Pretty easy. But are we okay with that happening from a quality of life perspective, knowing that maybe that facility doesn't see a lot of traffic? Or do we just simply block any type of live streaming traffic because of the risk that we would be looking at from you know, the risk profile we designed or the threat risk assessment? So now you can bring in some of the work that Terry's done with Amanaza that when we talked to him about from that risk lens and from looking at things from that overarching risk perspective and the human element that we had from our previous guests, you can start seeing this whole arc now where I, I think there's this maturity from this security function where we need to start embracing these, all these different elements. Yeah. That is it okay for that guard to watch, you know, online soccer matches at two in the morning. If it is okay, let them know, be proactive about it. But then what other controls can you have? Like how often are we going to check his cameras now to see if he did miss something? Or is it just simply we, you know, wholesale block everything and he's going to have to watch the camera all day long. Mm -hmm. So we're, there's going to be, I don't, I don't, I don't have an answer, but there's got, there's going to be a balance where we're all going to have to work with our executives and our leadership to figure out what does that balance look like? And what's the risk that we're willing to accept? Are we okay with the human element being part of that discussion and that situation. I think we need to be because it's, I think it's unfair to look at it without bringing the human in because we're all, we all have our own, you know, something that we're all passionate about, something we want to do, or, or each one of us has issues that we're dealing with day over day. And sometimes work gets in the way of those. So how do we want to manage that? Mm -hmm. There's definitely data there that can be consumed. I think there's just not enough time most companies are willing to spend figuring out 
What does that really mean? I hook it up and I press play and there it is. That's a great start. But Mm -hmm. can I trust that's not something else? An IP address is an excellent example. We were just going through this the other day. You've got dynamic IP address assignment. So who had that IP address on that day is a better question. And how would you know that? So looking back to something that's intermittent, like uh, like door card data. Yeah. You yeah. know, you'd, you'd mentioned the data center and they badged in and they said badged out. Most organizations don't really have too many facilities where you need the badge to go in and then the door won't open until you badge out again. But but do you see this, like, where do you see this in the next couple of years, Doug? Like, where do you see this going and the value that it brings? Because there's inherent value to all of this, right? Like, it's uh-huh. it's absolutely providing value to security professionals. There's ways to use that data that's being collected for risk reduction. But where do you see it? Or where would you like to see it go in the next, like, two to three years, if you, know, if you had to look that far down the road? I think we do have to look that far down the road because it's going to take two or three years to put anything in. So we might as well know what it's supposed to be before we start. Yeah. <laughs> in all seriousness, I think just because you can collect that data doesn't mean everybody should have access to it. So getting organizations more focused on, I want to call it data architecture, but more about data privacy architecture, I think, is really the thing. Oh, that's kind of cool. Well, you look at things like uh, the NERC-KIP standard. Mm-hmm. They state right in there that you can't be sharing things like site diagrams and system configs and all that kind of stuff with just anybody. Right. And right. you have to mark it as confidential, and the people you're sharing it with should be under NDA with you and all that kind of stuff. Yep. That sounds great until the data gets lost. Yeah. Uh, and then what do you do? So encryption seems the obvious thing uh, because then you can not only prove that you had access to it, but if it's now out in the clear, you know, somebody decrypted it before it left. Yeah. And they definitely knew what it was because they had the key. You know? Right. For my master's, looking at the de-identification of log data. And I've come across some papers here and there where they've talked about third-party security providers having access to your information. And they right. there seems to be a at least an academic term called honest but curious adversary, which sounds strange at first. Once you start piling a whole bunch of data in one place, this is where it gets really problematic because with the modern tools, and now you put in even somewhat anonymized, air quotes, data in front of somebody who has the skills because they're working in that area already. Right. And they've got millions and millions of events. Can they start to extract new insights out of that that weren't originally intended. And that's where I think it's GDPR Article 11, could be Article 4. There's there's a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. That's what they're talking about, that yeah. you know this, this data processor that suddenly has a lot of information together, can they start to re-identify people or scenarios through this clustered data? And it's one thing for your credit card because you can always replace it, but... Yeah. 
Where it seems like it really started to get messy was around 2012, 2014. And I think it's tied more to the the evolution of IoT. And now that you've got all kinds of household devices that now have an address. Um, washing machines making funny noises, so there's a new one on the way. Mm-hmm. The new washing machine comes with IP enabled something or other. Well, unless there's an IP thing that is actually going to go grab the clothes out of the hamper and stuff them in the bin for me, I'm not inclined to hook this <laughs> exactly. up. Yeah. Because how do we know where that's going, right? I realize that these things sound good, but all this data at some point is sitting in Apple or Samsung or LG or wherever. What if it gets loose? What are they going to what are they going to do with it? And you can maybe start to tie some of those phone home things back to physical locations because there's a it's disturbing how accurate some of these IP to place mappings are yep. now. They're yep. pretty darn close. And you say, well, your average person has five or six different devices that are IP enabled that are around them all the time. You start piecing a couple of those together and you're you're now gonna be putting two and two together and go, one isn't enough, but I got three points of reference that says he's within 200 feet of that thing. Exactly. I mean, but, you know, I, I use this example. There was, it wasn't that long ago, and this was in the healthcare. I was doing, I, I we were conducting, a team and I, we were conducting a, an impact assessment of a pharmaceutical uh, project. And it was for a, a government entity. And I was able to, with the data set that they had and what they were collecting for information to uniquely identify my mm-hmm. grandmother in the data set. Age, address, postal code, and then um, at least one affliction yeah. that she was taking medication for. And I, I entered that as a, you know, within the data set. It was, again, it was a, a fairly narrow data set. It was supposed to be, quote, anonymized. But I, I identified her profile and her as a person within the building she was in. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, wow, I got to go 10 years ago, maybe even before that. And that's, that was just based on data that was collected by an entity for a study, a case study within a pharmaceutical. Yep. And it's like, this is just, I think you nailed it. There's more places now to find Tim in the world with all of my devices, or are your washer and dryer attached to their Wi-Fi? What else is on your Wi-Fi network? Who else, who can see it? What have you done to protect it? What have you done to restrict access to it? I mean, all of the things that we tell all of our organizations to do as security professionals, if you're not doing it at home or for your own personal stuff, then you know the, this concept of your information being safe, secure, and private, I think just goes out the window because we've accepted so much and we've put in some amazing technologies and everyone just jumps on it and goes, this is awesome. But the counter to that is, well, but what if I can see you and your banking and where you live? And what if I can manage your cameras now inside your house as opposed to you? Mm-hmm. How does that change the perspective? And it's it's such a, this is what I mean, like we're in a really interesting place because we've got some legislation that's coming forward that is trying to help this. We've got some requirements that are coming forward from security that we're trying to put better controls in place, train our people, train our humans. And then we've even got some recent studies that have come out of ASIS, uh, the value that an ESRM-based program has for a security organization. So this whole concept of focusing on risk. And they did some great work from the ASIS Foundation on completing this report. But 
we still have the issue of I can, what if I can find Tim and I don't have to work that hard to find it? Yeah. That, that still, out of all the things that I deal with every day, that's the stuff that still scares me, right? Is being able to find Tim. Yeah, because we don't know who's looking for Tim. Exactly. And I think that is the difference now because a lot of it's digitized. The old way, you used to have to follow you around and yep. you'd probably notice somebody hanging around your you know, street or whatever in a car that you hadn't seen before. Now, of course, we don't need that level of proximity because there are many things we can do it on our behalf. But I'm encouraged. I mean, you'd, you'd mentioned that ASUS is, is looking at, am I saying that right? ASUS or ASUS? I mean, it's, it's ASUS, ASIS. There's a couple of different ways to say it, but ASUS is one of the ways. Yeah. Uh, okay. So ASIS. Right? ASIS, ASUS, yeah. You so mentioned. you're saying put out, uh, they've put out a report on this, but I think their original roots were more in physical security, right? Yes. Yeah, very much so. And that's where we started many years ago. And we've embraced, though, this idea that uh, security should include cyber, OT, you know, it's... And then the next level up now is this concept of using a risk-based approach where the umbrella of risk is where all things can fall underneath. And I just I just had that discussion with my better half at lunch today, is that wouldn't it be great if we could get the profession of security based on the concept of risk? And then... The pillars that hold it up could be all the unique specialties. It kind of like what law and medicine is. I, I'm a lawyer, but I specialize in real estate or contract law. I'm a I'm a security professional, but I specialize in threat hunting or red teaming or executive protection. Okay. There's this really cool approach where if we could look at it from that lens, then you're creating this amazing tent where everybody can come in because they got a space in the tent. And it's I, I'm hoping in my lifetime that that happens because then. Now you're getting towards that level of a profession. Right. And if you look at the CISSP, I think that was their original intent because yeah. there were a couple of domains that were tied to the physical. Mm-hmm. And I think they just didn't go far enough. I learned the word fenestration from studying <laughs> for that exam. <laughs> For those that don't feel like looking that up, that just means you got Windows. Apparently, Windows in the data center are a bad idea. Really bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't need that explained to them, but you never know. (laughs) The little bits of physical they talked about, protecting sensitive data lines using conduit. And Mm -hmm. no Windows in the data center is an obvious one. Card locks or something like that. But I think where we're we're missing is we we need to modernize that approach. There's no talk in cybersecurity about executive protection as a thing. But without a doubt, there are certain individuals within any organization that if they were to fall into the wrong hands, that's not going to be good for your company, let alone them personally. Absolutely. So since you're the president this year, maybe you can start asking this question out loud, I think we do need to bring more of that physical response to cyber incidents into the conversation because it's clearly missing mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and I would I would also have the reverse of that, bring you know the, the cyber into physical because I think the value of having both teams and now, now we can... We can close this discussion on the converge topic, right? <laughs> this idea of converging the teams together for everything from planning 
you know, a response to an incident to actually managing the incident itself and conducting the risk assessment before to reduce the risk. All of this, all of these lead back to it. We, we get better at what we do if we work together as a team and, and under one approach and under one, you know, one, one common approach to addressing the risk. And that's where, you know, I just, I keep going back to the whole concept of ESRM. It, it aligns so nicely with this idea of engaging the cyber folks in all things physical, engaging the physical folks in all things cyber, because there's such a huge amount of information in our space. Mm-hmm. I look at our world and, and how many different roles can you count that fall within a security space? Right, everything from a guard member right up through to an executive. It's like it's endless. And it's how do I ever or how can I ever realize the value of what a profession can bring if we continue on on disparate roads? So the closer we can tie each other and the closer we can bring the teams together and the organizations under one, you know, one reporting structure or through to one team. And then I deal with that scenario from a one, you know, a one team perspective instead of two. I think there's some huge value to that. And then absolutely to your point about, uh, wouldn't it be great to have the cyber folks learn more about the physical? And then wouldn't it be great for all of us to learn more about the human? What Rochelle talked about in our very first <laughs> podcast, that's really my hope for the year is to focus on the human, right? And to find a way to look at that from a positive perspective, because there's, there's huge advantage if we do this right change our perspective and try something different to focus on the positive of having the human in that security equation. And then the last thing for me, it's, it's risk. Thanks for listening to the latest podcast from Caffeinated Risk. Make sure you visit our website, caffeinatedrisk.com, to stay up to date on what we've been working on. Our website has bios of our podcast guests, posts about topics we're passionate about, and even a library reference material we find valuable in the work we do every day. And don't forget to subscribe to Caffeinated Risk on your favorite podcast service. This way, you'll be notified when we release our next podcast. And you can listen to our previous guests just in case you missed them. Thanks so much for listening to Caffeinated Risk.